Good morning, and happy Mother's Day. It is a delight to be here among you this morning, this beautiful spring day. I repeat, it is a beautiful spring day. In my former life as a summer camp director for the Diocese of Massachusetts, I used to say to our staff, and therefore through them, through our children, that we were blessed with an abundance of liquid sunshine in the past few days. So thank you for joining in me in that delusion of <laughs> in our rainy time. My name is Matt Lindemann, and I serve at Trinity Southport, and it's a joy to be here to support Whitney as she travels and to, to be with you here today. I'm going to go ahead and guess that when you rolled out of bed this morning, you weren't so much thinking that this is the last Sunday of Easter or the first Sunday after the Ascension, otherwise known as Ascension Tide, if you want the 10-point word. Most of us have been keenly aware through any trip to Stop and Shop, CVS, flipping on the television, or just being good people, that today is Mother's Day. And so happy Mother's Day to you and to all of us. I hope that this day can be one of appreciation of the maternal love we've received, either through our birth mothers or from some other maternal figure in our lives. Love we've re received, love we've been given, and that we seek to continue to nurture and support the growth of others through that gratitude. That's my prayer, in part for myself, because if I'm honest, Mother's Day makes me nervous. It's one of those times in which I do a mental inventory of all the things that the mothers in my life, whether it be my own mother, grandparents, my wife, the mother of my children, and anyone I know who is nurturing for and giving of themselves in the world, I start trying to do a little bit of mental arithmetic thinking, gosh, they're up to so many things. What have I done to reciprocate that? And I, I found myself weighed in the balance and found wanting, and it makes me nervous. And so out of that place of nervousness, I get a little grumpy, thinking, gosh, well, this is stressful. Now I have all these things to feel guilty about that I'm not doing. Um, almost like receiving gifts on your birthday, and rather than being grateful for receiving the gift, you're anxious about all the thank you notes you'll have to write. It's a weird place to be, and I'll just name that. And maybe that's just my stuff. And that's why I am praying a prayer of gratitude today. Because it's not about me. It's about the gift of sacrificial love, of giving, that is so important in this Easter season. The gift that Jesus gave us by dying on the cross for us. And yet it's a mysterious time, and I, in some ways, get to take some comfort in the fact that the disciples are going through a similar experience of trying to figure out how to receive this gift, this gift of grace. They're the ones who are receiving it for the first time. And after the initial joy of the resurrection and maybe some holy terror, there's a little bit of sorting out to do. The disciples are doing their own inventory. Thomas is dealing with a lot of grief and maybe some anger, possibly fearing that the other disciples are playing a mean prank on him when they say, Jesus was here while you were out. You missed him. Peter has to deal with the probable experience of the shame of having denied Jesus three times. And yet, rather than coming out and saying that, 
he, tip, he takes this very male perspective and gets angry with Jesus. Jesus asks, do you love me? Three times, mirroring the denial. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Come on, you know this. <laughs> and yet, there Jesus is, cooking breakfast for the disciples, asking Peter to feed his lambs, tend his sheep, and feed his sheep. It's a time in which a posture of gratitude goes a long way because we've been given so much. Christ, our brother, is teaching Peter how to love, how to live, and in such a way, Jesus, God's son, acts as perhaps a wise sibling in our family. I don't know if any of you ever hop on a conference call when you're deciding what to do for your parents this year. So you call a sibling if you're blessed and cursed with having siblings and uh, try to work that out. And in some ways, Jesus is teaching us how to love God as best we can and also interceding to God the Father on our behalf because we sometimes need him to do that for us. And this gospel passage of Jesus as high priest interceding on our behalf, trying to pull the people of God together as one and that the people of God might be of God, might be dwelling in God, God the vine, who Jesus refers to God as and being part of that. We are the branches. How do we all become one together to give that gift of God's love as best we can, sharing it as best we can? There's something about these strange gifts. They change your identity upon receiving them. You'll never be the same after receiving them. The disciples know this. Jesus called to fishermen and tax collectors and asked them to close the books and drop the nets and follow, and they did. And so in this Easter season, when Peter in some ways turned his back on all that and said, you know what, I'm going fishing while we figure this out. He tried to pick up that new identity again, but it wasn't quite going as well as it could have. Peter and the disciples are changed. Paul and Silas on their missionary journey are in the process of being changed and changing lives as well. The gift of the Holy Spirit has come and they are proclaiming good news to all who will hear it, releasing the captive slave girl in the first part of the passage and then dealing with the consequences of the serious economic hit that the girl's owners were taking. They're taken to court and ultimately put in prison. And yet, they're liberated by an earthquake, and rather than escaping, it's not a story of escape, but one of liberation, one of rescue. Paul and Silas stay in jail to rescue the jailer from himself, from the pain of shame, from the crushing burden of having been weighed in the balance and found wanting. They save him from himself, and out of gratitude, that jailer then brings them into his home. Not unlike the story of Lydia last week, inviting Paul and Silas into their home to begin this new thing they call the church. It's a wonderful thing. But anytime you begin a new life, it means that an old one has changed forever. That jailer probably can't go back to work doing what he was doing. 
The slave girl who was making so much money telling fortunes will no longer be doing that. What lies ahead is uncertain. And it's at this moment where we find the disciples today. And in our own lives, it's where we find ourselves every day, wondering what to do next, where the Holy Spirit might take us. As I think about what it means to be on the precipice of new life and new identity, I'm reminded of my time in the Peace Corps. I was a volunteer in El Salvador. Uh, and in about 2007, my wife and I volunteered to translate for a, me- a medical campaign in an, on a small island, a fishing community in the Gulf of Fonseca. It's the maritime border with El Salvador and Nicaragua and Honduras. Very hot. <laughs> and we arrived on this island early in the morning by boat <clears throat> so that we could do our best work. And those who were carrying the medical equipment and the American doctors who'd come to do some treatment uh, began to set up shop in the local school and my wife and other Peace Corps volunteers who volunteered to translate, uh, we got busy as well by walking around town trying to find coffee. And we did. Peace Corps volunteers are good at finding the good stuff in town. And so we arrived at the house of Raul and Nina Ana. And Anna ran the store and minded the children, raised them, got them to school. They also helped out in the store. And Raul earned his money by fishing, just as so many did. And we were at, talking about the campaign that was to come. And they were really excited to come and join. And everyone had to present their ID card to verify that people weren't just going through the line over and over again uh, to get treatment. And Raul was nervous because he didn't have photo ID. And we asked him why, how, how does that happen? And he showed us his hands. And Raul, the fisherman, the man who hauled nets in and out of the water with rough polypropylene rope, had, his hands had been so worn by the friction of dragging the nets that his fingerprints wouldn't work on the machine in the local governmental office. In a sense, he had no identity. The fisherman by trade as part of his identity, that piece of identity kept him from connecting to the services of the Salvadoran government, of the welfare for the people. And so I wonder what it must have been like to be Raul, to have that opportunity to see what happens. What happens when you put the nets down if you're him? Will your identity come back? Will you get those fingerprints back to be, in a very visible way, the unique individual that God created him to be? When the disciples are called to put down their nets and become new, to change their identity, I wonder if their fingerprints changed. As we're called to go out into the world, I wonder too what happens when we put down our nets. When we follow Jesus and the teaching of the apostles into places where we're not quite sure where we're heading or why we're going, but we've been called and so we're going together. There's a certain power of that moment. And there's real temptation to go back to what we know, to pick the nets back up and get back to the way we've been doing things. And yet, we as imperfect people know that the usual way of doing business isn't always the best for us. God is calling us into something new each and every day. And so I think about Raul, 
putting down those nets. And I think about what that does with your hands. Whenever you're holding on to something, a way of being in the world that is so comforting, you think of trying to hold on to memory or to possessions or to a way of being or doing. And if you clench your own fists for a second, just do that. And imagine yourself trying to hold, I don't know, a fistful of rice. Now, as you put down those nets, as we let go of those things that we're trying to hold on to, look how much more surface area you've got in your hand. As opposed to trying to hold on to things as they are, to hold on to a precious nostalgia or an idealization of what it means to be a mother or as a Christian or those pedestals we put ourselves on in kind of either-or thinking, if we let go of some of that stuff and just open up to the gratitude of being called into a new day by a God who loves us and is in relationship with us, how much more can we carry now with these open hands? How much more welcome are we by the Christ who welcomes us with open arms, even from the cross? So as we go forth from this bumpy Easter season, as the disciples make their shift from being a disciples, followers of Jesus, people with whom we can relate because they're kind of bumbling and angry and making choices into what it means to be apostles, to work with the Spirit, to do miraculous things. As we embrace Pentecost to come, the birth of the church, the reason why we're here right now, I invite us to do it with open hands, just as the Christ who welcomes us into relationship, that we might be one in him and he in us, and that we might all together be with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, our mother. And so as we go forth from here, let's do it with an open hand and an open heart and a sense of gratitude and joy. Amen.